This is Guns and Butter. I don't think that the nuclear facilities constitute the objective of this war. It's not to disable these nuclear facilities that they would be waging a war on Iran. The objective has to do with the fact that Iran has 10% of the world's oil reserves. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, Iran and the nuclear option. Michelle Chosodovsky is professor of economics at the University of Ottawa and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. The Center for Research on Globalization is an independent research and media group of writers, scholars, and activists. The Global Research webpage at www.globalresearch.ca, based in Montreal, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues focusing on social, economic, strategic, geopolitical, and environmental processes. The website was established on the 9th of September, 2001, two days before the tragic events of September 11th. Barely a few days later, global research had become a major news source on the New World Order and Washington's war on terrorism. Michel Chosodovsky's latest article, Nuclear War Against Iran, was posted there on January 3rd, 2006. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome again. It's a pleasure to be on the program. You've recently written a very important article, Nuclear War Against Iran, in which you document and analyze U.S. government plans for what is designated a global strike. What did you find out when you started researching this? Well, in fact, I've been researching this for, I would say, for over a year. I had initially, several months ago, back in May of last year, I had looked into into a plan, which was a joint Israeli-U.S. plan with the collaboration of Turkey to wage surgical strikes against Iran using tactical nuclear weapons. So, in fact, we are in a scenario of a nuclear war. We've known this for quite some time. There's been a lot written on these impending strikes on Iran. I think certainly since the end of the campaign against Iraq, this has been on the, on the agenda. And in fact, if you want to go back further, Clinton had formulated in the mid-90s a plan to invade both Iraq and Iran, so that Iran has really been in the pipeline of military planning for quite some time. But what was distinct in the December 2004 project, which I documented at an earlier stage, is that Uh, First of all, Israel was taking possession of U.S.-produced weapons. This started actually in December of 2004, so it's over one year. And what happened is that there was, in fact, consultation between Tel Aviv on the one hand, Washington, and also Ankara. In other words, the Turkish government was also involved in this scenario, in these preparations. And uh, Israel was taking delivery of a large amount of of military hardware, 
produced in the United States. Um, and then you had consultations which were ongoing between the three governments. You had a situation where there was shuttle diplomacy between Washington, Ankara, and Tel Aviv. There were consultations with partners in Brussels so that NATO was also being consulted on this process. What I was able to document at the time was that, first of all, there was an arms build-up. Uh, in fact, that arms build-up was almost completed in June of last year. Secondly, there were military exercises taking place. Those military exercises took place early last year, and uh, they not only involved the United States, Israel, and Turkey, but they also involved a number of frontline Arab countries, which had been involved, uh, so to speak, in consultations both with NATO as well as with Israel. And this was, in fact, the precedent on the whole uh, planning process. Now, when I returned to looking at this war agenda, when we started to get a lot more information in the media, particularly reports from the German media that these strikes against Iran, using the pretext of its nuclear program, were scheduled to take place. And in fact, the Israelis announced that they were planning to launch them in late March. In fact, Ariel Sharon had already given the green light to the Israeli armed forces to launch these attacks. There were statements made by the United States. CIA Director Porter Goss was on mission to Ankara, just a couple of months ago in December, and he had requested the Turkish Prime Minister to, quote, provide political and logistic support for airstrikes against Iranian nuclear and military targets, so that we're not talking about something which is up in the air. These consultations have been ongoing for at least a year. Israel is, is in an advanced state of readiness to launch the attacks, but the United States has also undertaken other military exercises of a very significant uh, type because this operation would be very much centralized under U.S. Strategic Command at the Offwood Air Force Base in Nebraska. And, and what they have envisaged is essentially what was described as shock and awe. Now, in other words, massive bombing of Iran they say it's Iranian nuclear facilities, but in, in effect, it also involves civilian targets and economic targets and so on. And this is confirmed by military documents. And then what happened is that about, again, in November, December, there were other military exercises which were conducted under the auspices of a new command unit and this command unit is called the Joint Functional Component Command Space and Global Strike, JFCCSGS. And that particular command unit would oversee an attack which would use both conventional weapons as well as tactical nuclear weapons. And uh, in fact, what this, this unit which belongs to U.S. Strategic Command, has done is to conduct high-level military exercises, and it has stated that it is in an advanced state of readiness to conduct 
this kind of, of attack. And so that we're dealing with something which is confirmed by military documents. Now, the other element of the jigsaw puzzle is what is called Concept Plan 8022. Concept Plan 8022 would be implemented under the auspices of this new uh, Joint Force Command Unit. It involves what is called Global Strike. It would essentially integrate again conventional as well as nuclear weapons. It would target so-called rogue states, but in effect, given the timing of these military exercises, it would appear that, in fact, uh, CONPLAN is intended to be used against Iran. And so if you, if you start looking at the various components of this program, you have advanced state of readiness of the Israelis on the one hand, then you have Turkey, then you have the United States Strategic Command, which in effect would be coordinating this operation. Then in turn, and that's very important, very recently we noticed that um, Israeli special forces are operating in border areas inside Turkey in an agreement with the government so that, in effect, these special forces are there and they're already involved in, well, in fact, they're involved in exercises, but the fact that Israeli forces are inside Turkish territory on the Syrian and Iranian borders, for me, is certainly indicative of the broader process which is ongoing. Michel, you talk in your article about the Nuclear Posture Review, which was passed in the Senate in the beginning of 2002. Is this what allows the United States military to, in fact, use nuclear weapons in a first strike capacity? Yeah. Yes, the decision was taken in December 2003, and it essentially gives the green light to the uh, Bush administration to use tactical nuclear weapons in conventional war theaters. And uh, what we have to understand is that the Bush administration is pushing forward a new generation of nuclear weapons, which they claim are harmless to civilians because the explosion is underground, and that these nuclear weapons would be delivered essentially through conventional means. In other words, through it could be a B-52 bomber or cruise missile, or it could be through a bunker buster bomb, okay? but using a nuclear warhead instead of a conventional warhead. When I say that, that this is a nuclear war on Iran, I am referring to the fact that these tactical nuclear weapons are slated to be used in a conventional war theater. And what they have done is that they've essentially blurred the distinction between conventional bombs and nuclear bombs because they've redefined these tactical nuclear weapons as harmless to civilians. And consequently, they've cleared them for use. And in fact, they've even defined them as, as an instrument of peacekeeping or peacemaking because they say, well, people are not going to die, there's not going to be collateral damage, etc., etc. Of course, they don't discuss the impact of radioactivity of a large area. Now, these 
tactical nuclear weapons range from one-third to six times a Hiroshima bomb in terms of explosive capacity. The type of mini-nukes, they call them mini-nukes because they say they're small nuclear bombs, the type of nuclear device that they're planning to use in relation to Iran are of the smaller type. They would be one-third to one-half of a Hiroshima bomb. Uh, however, they could use many, several of these nuclear devices in Iran. There's no question that if they start using these tactical nuclear weapons, we are entering into a scenario of nuclear war. The Pentagon has prepared this scenario by waging a propaganda campaign which presents these tactical nuclear weapons as essentially as conventional weapons. And they've enlisted nuclear scientists, they have their research labs, and, and so on and so forth. And essentially what has happened now is that these nuclear weapons have been cleared for use. They're not weapons of last resort, as during the Cold War period. And then we are led to believe that tactical nuclear weapons really are not the same thing as the, as the larger size nuclear bombs. But in fact, they're exactly the same thing. They're smaller, they have lesser explosive capacity, but they would lead to a nuclear holocaust. And that is something which has to be addressed, because what has happened now is that if you look at the logic of the military plan, the stockpiling of weapons, it would appear that these nuclear bombs, these tactical nuclear weapons, are slated to be used in the next phase of this war. It's well known and documented, but there's been virtually no debate. There's been a debate, and, and this is the irony, and, uh, because the media is essentially presenting Iran as a nuclear threat. Now, Iran doesn't possess nuclear weapons. It has a nuclear program. I don't want to enter into the, the details of this nuclear program, but at the moment, Iran does not constitute a nuclear threat whatsoever. And what the United States is saying is that we have to go in uh, to make the world safer, bomb Iran with these tactical nuclear weapons, which are harmless to civilians, so that Iran will not constitute a threat to the rest of the world. And in fact, Iran doesn't have those capabilities. So the media distortions are to such an extent where, on the one hand, non-existent nuclear weapons on the part of Iran are considered a threat to global security, and on the other hand, where the, the nuclear weapons which the Israelis and American armed forces are planning to use on Iran, those are bona fide nuclear bombs, okay? But they're presented as harmless to civilians. So in one case, these nuclear weapons are an instrument of peacekeeping, the ones that actually are there and are functional, and the others which are non-functional and non-existent are presented as a threat to global security. So we've turned all these concepts upside down. We present Iran as a threat, whereas in fact it's Israel and the United States with the complicity of Turkey and NATO uh, which have embarked upon a military adventure which in effect could lead to a nuclear holocaust in the Middle East. I'm speaking with author and professor of economics, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Iran and the Nuclear Option. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
Also in your article, Nuclear War Against Iran, you cite an August 2003 meeting where the Pentagon invited the private sector, namely the military-industrial complex, to a meeting held at the Ofit Air Force Base in Nebraska, which is Strategic Command Headquarters, and that this meeting uh, between the Pentagon and the military-industrial complex basically amounted to the privatization of nuclear war. Now, are some of these companies actually part of the planning of these types of wars? The meeting held at the Offwood Air Force Base, uh, of course, was historical, uh, because what they did, and they chose Hiroshima Day to have that meeting. It's a very cynical process. The 6th, I believe it was the 6th of August, 2003. Now, they invited the major military contractors with, of course, Lockheed Martin in the lead, and they invited the nuclear industry. We don't know who was actually there, but it was at this meeting that they formulated a policy. They didn't only invite the military contractors, we call them defense contractors, but they're weapons producers. Uh, They didn't only consult them on the production or the procurement of military equipment. They also consulted them on how these bombs were to be used. So in effect, uh, that's what I say that nuclear war has been privatized, because The decision to launch a nuclear war, which was previously considered as based on the weapon of last resort, was ultimately dictated by politicians under international agreements, if we think of the Soviet-U.S. relationship. And now what has happened is that we've asked the private sector to consult with us on how we will formulate the nuclear agenda. So we involve them in the process of formulating a nuclear weapons policy. We indicate not only what kinds of weapons we want them to produce, but also conversely, we say, well, what do you think? How should we go about this? What this means is that really the military contractors have a direct voice in the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. That's something which is not new, but it's seems to be formalized in the context of the nuclear war agenda. And it means that essentially that nuclear war now is subordinated to profit, okay? Because producing nuclear weapons is a very uh, profitable undertaking. These military contractors make billions of dollars. We know that the defense budget is something of the order of $450 billion a year. And it's going up. And that doesn't include all the other supplemental budgets, uh, which are not reported, nor does it include the costs of the Iraq war itself. So when we put that in perspective, $450 billion is of the same order of magnitude as the GDP of the Russian Federation. We're talking about a colossal amount of money. And that money accrues to the military contractors. At least a large part of it accrues to the military contractors. And there you are. When you invite these people to come in and consult with you on how these wars have to be conducted, of course, it changes the whole context. In an airstrike against Iran, for instance, what is the point of using tactical nuclear weapons as opposed to conventional weapons? Well, that's, I think, a very important question because the difference between a conventional bunker-buster bomb and a nuclear 
bunker buster bomb is that in one case, the conventional weapon doesn't create radioactive contamination, although it could because it's also directed against nuclear facilities. So even the use of conventional bombs directed against uh, Iran's nuclear facilities would have a, a devastating impact. But, I mean, the answer to that is, is radioactivity as a ground contaminant. It would, in effect, lead to um, ground contamination over a vast area of the Middle East. And this, of course, is virtually a permanent characteristic because radioactivity has a duration of several million years. You know, I mean, we're talking about virtually. It's permanent. And uh, it's something which has, in fact, been debated in relation to depleted uranium. But that would be the impact. It would be uh, the use of nuclear devices over Iran in the Middle East would lead to radioactivity over a vast area. Now, from a military strategic point of view, does that have an advantage? I would say no, it doesn't have an advantage. It has the advantage, well, it, it kills people. It also sustains the military-industrial complex in the United States because these weapons are being developed, and they're not being developed simply to be shelved. And that's precisely the thrust of the new nuclear weapons policy. What they're saying is that the old Cold War weapons, which are much larger nuclear devices, admittedly far more destructive, that these Cold War weapons now are being superseded by a smaller, more acceptable type of nuclear weapon. But at the same time, they've lifted all the restrictions on their use so that they could go ahead and use quite a number of these in a conventional war theater essentially leading to nuclear holocaust. The nuclear holocaust would perhaps not be reported even in the newspapers. We might find out about it several years later because the explosions of a nuclear device, of a mini-nuke, of a tactical nuclear weapon, are quite similar to the explosions of a bunker buster bomb. So that uh, if, uh, if there's no actual official... Uh, declaration to the fact that these tactical nuclear weapons have been used, we may find out some years later that they have been used. And, and there are some people who think that they may have been used in the Iraqi and Afghan war theater. There's no proof of that, but there's some, there's some discussion and debate on, on that. Also in your article, Nuclear War Against Iran, you go on to say that the purpose of this military operation is not to disable the nuclear facilities, that is, of Iran, but the purpose is to ultimately destroy a country resulting in significant civilian casualties, which then opens the door for the conquest of Iran, its oil facilities, and so on. Do you think that, assuming they were to conduct an airstrike against Iran, that this would ultimately be the objective? I don't think that the nuclear facilities constitute the objective of this war. It's not to disable these nuclear facilities that they would be waging a war on Iran. The objective has to do with the fact that Iran is the third largest oil producer. I'm sorry, in terms of reserves, it has 10% of the world's oil reserves. It's about four times those of the United States. And there's another factor which has been alluded to uh, at least for more than a year. It's the fact that Iran 
has a project to essentially de-dollarize the oil market. So it wants to set up an oil bourse, which would link oil transactions to the euro. And so that is something which uh, goes against the interests of the United States. It could, it could lead to devastating uh, impacts in currency markets, for instance, so that the Iranians have this project of a euro-denominated international oil market where oil would be sold, would be linked to the euro rather than to the U.S. dollar, and it would be traded in, in euros. Now, to what extent this is important in understanding the present context, I, I think it is. And there have been a couple of very interesting uh, reviews of this project, which the Tehran government wants to implement. Uh, and it's something which, has, which was debated also in relation to Iraq, uh, and Venezuela, the fact that these countries would, in effect, delink their transactions from the U.S. dollar and from, of course, from the control of the Federal Reserve System. And that would undermine the position of the United States as the dominant world currency. So that we're also looking at this agenda in the context of competing global currency systems. And indeed, in this regard, it's the competition between the euro and the U.S. dollar. Now, I think what's also important to understand is that on the one hand, the Europeans, I'm talking about the European Union, um, mainly France and Germany, which had at an earlier stage opposed this military agenda, there haven't been many dissenting voices emanating from the European Union. In fact, it would appear that with ongoing consultations between Washington, Paris, Berlin, and of course Brussels, NATO headquarters, that um, in fact the NATO partners are in agreement. We're very much more in the 1999 scenario prior to the bombing of Yugoslavia where there was a more or less a consensus that, uh, that, that this was the thing to do. And, and I, I haven't seen any dissenting voices comparable to those which, which we saw emerge in the United Nations Security Council in the, in the months leading up to the bombing of, of Iraq okay, in, in 2003. We don't see that. And what is very disturbing, we don't see any significant anti-war demonstrations against uh, a military operation, which could be even more devastating than the war in Iraq, because in this particular case, Iran could retaliate. I'm absolutely certain that they will retaliate. They have, a, they have acquired a sophisticated air defense system from Russia. They have the capabilities of, of delivering um, ballistic missiles. They could easily target Israeli facilities as well as U.S. facilities in the Persian Gulf. They could cross the border into Iraq. So that the thing is that this military operation, which is presented to public opinion as so-called surgical strikes with a view to preserving the peace and taming Iran in its nuclear program, could in fact escalate into an all-out war in the Middle East. And the situation now in Palestine with Hamas having won the elections, which I think is going to lead to a political deadlock, 
what's going to happen is that these various war theaters may in fact merge together. Then there's the Syrian, uh, you know, the, there's a possibility of Israeli troops entering Syria. There's a possibility of Turkish troops entering Iran and, and Syria on, on their northern frontiers. We have Israeli special forces now which are inside Turkey. So that any, I mean, any understanding of what this might imply, it could have devastating consequences, not only in terms of the use of nuclear weapons in a conventional war theater, but also the fact that Iran could retaliate, that this could lead into a ground war, and so on and so forth. And their military planning may, in fact, be, uh, well, whether these scenarios have been envisaged by the military planners is yet another matter. Unlike Iraq, Iran could retaliate. What about the Strait of Hormuz and the oil shipments? Well, that's another aspect, is that if this were to occur, we would see a complete disruption in the oil market. I mean, it could lead into, uh, again, a hike in oil prices beyond what we have today. I mean, as you suggest, Iranian oil may not flow to the world market, but at the same time, it could involve the shipments of oil from, from other Persian Gulf countries. The possibility that this war could lead into destabilizing financial markets, disrupting economic activity, not to mention the airlines. I mean, we're dealing with something which could potentially lead to a global economic crisis, which would uh, result concurrently with the military operation. I think that in a world where intelligence and military planning and financial planning and speculative financial planning are to some extent integrated we probably would see a lot of trading, of destabilizing trading on stock markets and oil markets and so on, because people who have an inside information on the timing of this operation are slated to make massive gains on financial markets. So the consequences are far-reaching, whatever way we look at it. I'm speaking with author and professor of economics, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Iran and the Nuclear Option. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Do you have an opinion as to the likelihood of an airstrike on Iran actually happening? I don't like to speculate on these issues because we, we can't really speculate on them because we don't know. What we do know is that the plans are fully operational. Okay? We know that the United States and Israel are in a state of readiness. We know there's been stockpiling. We know that U.S. command has already envisaged this possibility, that the Israelis have made statements, that NATO is also support of this initiative. And then the question is, what will happen at the level of decision-making within the military. I can't answer that. I can only go by the statements which have already been made. Now, I think we have to understand that military planning is not a sort of abstract exercise. Okay? And if military planning is ultimately pointing to the launching of a war, then we have to look at that very, very seriously. 
It's true that there are a number of countervailing forces within the United States, in Israel, in the Western military alliance, which may, in fact, prevent this war from occurring. And I certainly hope that that is going to happen. But on the other hand, we can't simply ignore the fact that these preparations are there. I mean, before the war happened in Iraq, nobody believed, actually, well, a lot of people believed it wouldn't take place. They said, well, it's totally absurd, etc. But as the D-Day approached, of course, we then realized that it was going to take place, and so on and so forth. And we're in a similar situation. We have a, a number of statements and documents and press reports which confirm that an aerial attack on Iran is in the pipeline and that this is a major military operation. That's about all that I can say at this stage. And if we are to reverse the tide, we need to move in a very concrete way. We need to establish massive anti-war networks, not simply going out in the streets and saying, you know, we're against the war. In the months ahead, we have to build networks across the land. We have to debate this. We have to sensitize people on the dangers of nuclear war. We have to confront the media. You know, what prevents war from occurring is a consistent, coherent anti-war movement. And at this stage, that anti-war movement is, is not there. It doesn't have the capabilities even of comprehending what is forthcoming. Uh, very few people in the anti-war movement will actually actually realize that that nuclear weapons are contemplated in these surgical strikes. Many people in the anti-war movement uh, actually believe that Iran is the threat, okay? Because their perspective has been blurred by the media disinformation. Many people believe that Osama bin Laden is the threat. And even if they even if they take a, a stance against the war and against the U.S.-led war, they still believe that the war on terrorism has some, is a valid objective of U.S. foreign policy. And so we have to initiate in the months ahead a very broad movement across the United States, across Canada, uh, around the world, to uh, prevent that war from occurring. And we can't trust necessarily the dissenting voices within the administration or within the U.S. Congress, okay? Because the U.S. Congress has already given the green light to the use of tactical nuclear weapons. So uh, there's no way we're going to go backwards on that. And once those tactical nuclear weapons have been reclassified, safe for civilians, they don't even require a, a political approval. They can be launched by a three-star general in the war theater may say, well, here we are, we've got them, let's use them. The military manuals say they're safe for civilians. And these people go by the military manuals. And they believe, in fact, they believe their own propaganda. Okay? We're in a situation where war propaganda, which presents nuclear weapons as safe for civilians, is actually an assumption of the, the commanders in the war theater who at one point will have to decide whether they use these nuclear weapons or not. So that's the underlying situation. And I wouldn't want to say, oh, well, it's impossible, this war won't take place. It is in the military pipeline at this stage. And we have to work very hard at all levels to prevent this war from occurring. We have to unseat 
the main military and political actors, and as well as the corporate sponsors of this agenda. Iran has essentially called the U.S.'s bluff. I mean, in other words, they're basically saying, make my day. Is there any possibility that Israel would do this without the United States? I personally don't think that Israel will implement any kind of military operation directed against Iran without U.S. approval. That's simply not the way the world works nowadays. There's a military coalition. There's very close consultation at the level of command structures. There's political consultations, diplomatic consultations. In other words, you don't launch a war without getting the green light from your other coalition partners. And so that, in effect, those who call the shots in this war is the United States of America in consultation with Israel and, to a lesser extent, with Turkey and NATO. And I don't see a scenario of unilateral attacks by Israel. Those indeed could take place, but they would take place in close coordination with Washington and the Pentagon. How does China and Russia figure in these military plans? You know, in international diplomacy, particularly with regard to China and Russia, they don't really reveal their position in public, okay? So that we have the feeling that there's some kind of a consensus by the Chinese and the Russians. But on the other hand, if we start to look behind the scenes, we notice, first of all, that both China and Russia are selling weapons to Iran. They're important shipments. The Russians are involved in the air defense system, satellites, and so on. And the Chinese are equipping Iran more with conventional weapons, tanks, and so on, okay? And, and also aircraft. So that suggests, in effect, that this war is really also a war between superpowers because the powers which are backing Iran is China and Russia. There's no question about it, at least at the level of selling them military technology. Now, on the other hand, neither of these countries is monolithic. Um, Russia is heavily indebted to Western creditors. There's a neoliberal agenda. There are important Western interests in Russia. The oil companies are there. So you, you can't really say that Russia is coherent in its various stances in relation to Western and U.S. interests. And similarly in China, I mean, China's also at this very moment, entry into the World Trade Organization, which was marked by uh, significant bilateral arrangements between the United States and China, particularly with regard to the entry of Western banking institutions into the Chinese financial structures. And there we have big players like Citigroup. I mean, Citigroup is one of the major banking institutions within China. So that China may be a superpower in some regards, but in other regards, it's also an economic colony of Western capitalism. It produces vast amounts of cheap labor commodities for Western markets. It is being encroached by Western financial institutions. So the extent to which these two countries can exert a countervailing power on the expansion of U.S. military interests in the region remains to be seen. I believe, however that ultimately, again, if we look at military documents, 
and we look at U.S. foreign policy. Going back to the Truman Doctrine, the ultimate objective is worldwide domination, and Iran is the stepping stone into possibly the subsequent stage, which would be the conquest of China and Russia. That conquest of China and Russia has already commenced. It's something which is ongoing, the penetration of Western financial institutions into China, into Russia, the destabilization of currency markets, the fragmentation of the former Soviet Union, the fact that several former Soviet republics are now within the U.S. zone of influence. All that, of course, is important. And eventually, when the United States enters into that region, the Central Asian, Middle Eastern region, it also has the objective to eventually marginalize Russia from the energy market, from playing a key role in that region. So what we're talking about is not only control over oil and gas reserves, but it's also the control over pipeline routes. It's to marginalize the Russians from the Central Asian region. And that's why we have a war in Chechnya, because the pipelines go through Chechnya. So again, the policies of the United States is to destabilize to destabilize politically these former Soviet republics to the extent that they cannot establish ties with Moscow and essentially to weaken Moscow's influence in that region. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about was that with regard to the consensus in the West for a move against Iran, don't the Europeans have too much to lose? Don't they need Iranian oil? Why would the European Union be in favor of such a move against Iran? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right, because um, the Europeans, and particularly the French, the French Total Fina Elf, the main European conglomerate, oil conglomerate, it's a Franco-Belgian conglomerate, but it also has German interests involved in it, and it's also linked up with Italian interests. Now, they have interests in Iran, they had interests in Iraq. When the war on Iraq emerged, the opposition which was formulated by Germany and France was essentially motivated by the interest of its own oil industry. And what it really implied was a conflict between the Anglo-American axis, Britain and, and America, and the Anglo-American oil companies on the one hand, and then you have the Franco-German alliance, which is based on uh, oil interests as well as interests in the spheres of defense production and finance. So that it's not to say that that division is clear-cut, but there's definitely a rift in the oil industry. Okay? There's a dominant Anglo-American group, which is made up of the large U.S. and British oil companies, mainly British Petroleum, which is an Anglo-American company, and then on the other hand, you have the Europeans with the Totalfina Elf, you have the Russians and the Chinese. So that, that's the geopolitics, and, and those conflicts are still there. Now, what I suspect is that the consultations which the Bush administration has been conducting over the last year or so with their European counterparts has been geared to preventing a showdown similar to that which occurred in late 2002 with regard to the invasion of Iraq. And that has to do with the sharing of the spoils of war. 
And I suspect that if the Europeans are giving the green light to a military intervention in Iran, it's because they have something to gain from an economic standpoint. There may be, in fact, some underlying agreement between the oil companies to share the spoils of this war. Otherwise, of course, the Europeans would be themselves marginalized from that region. I don't think that the Europeans have much clout in this regard. I also believe that eventually the United States plans to marginalize Western European interests as well, particularly France and Germany. What we've seen in recent months is the fact that the Bush administration's foreign policy stances are no longer the object of debate and dissent within the European Union as they were in 2002. In fact, this whole process has received a fair amount of acceptance by the Europeans. At least the Europeans are not making any noise to the fact that a war is being planned against Iran. I'm speaking with author and professor of economics, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Iran and the Nuclear Option. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But I should also mention that the nuclear war against Iran is very much tied into other aspects of the Bush administration's uh, project. It's tied into national security issues uh, because the way in which... uh, uh, the war on terrorism is is waged domestically under the auspices of homeland security is being used as a pretext to build a war agenda to develop a consensus that ultimately Iran is a threat and then what's going to happen is that the Iranians are going to be linked with Osama and the war against Osama and the war against Iran will be considered as one one major agenda to be waged both domestically and internationally, uh, which justifies the police state measures directed against anti-war activists uh, who are uh, said to be complicit with terrorists and so on and so forth, which in turn justifies the torture of, of enemy combatants, so that we're not dealing strictly with one dimension. We're dealing with a much broader agenda. It's the agenda of establishing and instating the police state within the United States under the Patriot legislation, uh, uh, under the repeal of democratic institutions, uh, spying on citizens, and so on and so forth, Big Brother across America. And then internationally, it's a project of extending, of extending the U.S. empire and waging war with, of course, always with a humanitarian mandate. That, that always has to stick because that's how the propaganda apparatus functions. The war against Iran is presented as, as a humanitarian war, as a just war. Why? Because it's there to weed out uh, a nuclear, an upcoming nuclear threat. The fact that this upcoming nuclear threat will be squashed by using nuclear weapons is not a matter for debate. And, and so I think that when we tackle the war in Iran, we have to tackle the other components of, of the Bush administration's war on terrorism agenda. 
which implies the militarization of the homeland, the repeal of civil liberties, and also, I think, another aspect of this is is the economic agenda, the neoliberal economic policies which which accompany this military agenda and which imply at the same time a massive shift of resources out of civilian economic activities, including social programs, into building up the military-industrial complex. We see it happening in America. We see it happening in Canada with the defense budgets. And at the same time, how this whole process, the neoliberal agenda tied into to the war agenda is leading to the impoverishment of people in the, in the so-called rich countries of the world, namely the United States, Canada, and Western Europe. Right. This war agenda functions as a pretext to continue setting up the homeland security state. One thing we haven't touched on is the escalation of a bombing strike on Iran escalating into a ground war, which the U.S. does not appear to be prepared for. Have you thought about that? Well, I certainly have thought about that, and I think the military planners have also thought about it, because anybody with minimal understanding of how wars are conducted will know that you can't necessarily uh, contain aerial bombardments strictly to, to the air. They could lead, first of all, they lead into retaliation. And now, if there is retaliation, as I mentioned earlier, it could be missile attacks against U.S. or Israeli facilities in the Persian Gulf, in Israel, in Iraq. That is something which the Iranians no doubt have planned. But secondly, we must understand that the Iranians could also cross the border into Iraq. Right, I mean, their troops are right there on the Iraqi border. And if that happens, the whole, I mean, the context of the war in Iraq changes totally overnight. I mean, if Iranian troops start entering, or even Iranian special forces, okay, they also have their covert operations. They're not, I mean, this is a country of 50, 60 million people, uh, very sophisticated, very highly educated, with a long history. And I'm sure that they have themselves envisaged the possibility of a ground war scenario. And uh, we know that the United States in Iraq is overextended, that they are coping, they are facing fierce resistance from the Iraqi resistance movement. The media calls them insurgents or terrorists. This is a resistance movement. It's a broad resistance movement. It's not limited to the Sunnis. It involves the Shiites. It involves all groups against the occupying forces. And again, it's not to say that the Iranians would necessarily become involved in that resistance movement, but they could certainly cross the border into Iraq and they could indeed confront U.S. military facilities in Iraq. Whether this would take place through conventional forces crossing the border with tanks or whether it would be covert operations, I can't make any statement to that effect. But it's clear that the borders are there. These are open borders. Okay. Now, what does it mean? Would it mean that the United States would start stationing troops all along the Iranian border? They're already overextended in Iraq. They can't cope with the underlying situation. So that's one aspect. I mentioned the fact that in Turkey, we already have Israeli troops. Okay? So 
Israeli special forces are inside Turkey on the Syrian and Iranian borders. So that that's something which, which I think is indicative of the fact that the military planners have already envisaged the possibility of this being a ground war if they have special forces inside Turkey. Uh, thirdly, in all likelihood, the Israeli troops could enter into Lebanon and Syria. Okay? I think that if there is escalation of any kind, the Israeli troops could enter into Lebanon and Syria, which is something uh, which has also been in more or less in the planning stages for quite some time. And, and it's tied into the fact that the Syrians now have withdrawn from Lebanon. The Syrian, I'm talking about the Syrian military, following the assassination of uh, former Prime Minister Hariri, which the United States have blamed on, on Syria with no evidence, so that they would build a pretext for entering into Lebanon and Syria, so that if you have that type of scenario, then, again, that whole region explodes. From Palestine up to the Turkish border, through Lebanon and Syria, on the one hand, and then, again, the other aspect, of course, Iran borders onto Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is also under U.S. military occupation. And, in fact, Canadian troops are there. Now, with that, and Iran has a long history of incursions into, into Afghanistan and involvement in the Afghan wars. So if we look at the map, we have a region which extends from Afghanistan to the eastern Mediterranean. Afghanistan, in turn, borders onto China. It borders onto Pakistan. You have a U.S. military presence in Pakistan. We know that Pakistan has been involved, is a very close ally of the United States. So that the possibility of escalation into ground was certainly there. And um, I believe that if there is escalation, there'd be a political crisis in the United States. How would the Bush administration deal with that political crisis in the United States? I also believe that there are plans to install a police state in America. In fact, that police state is already ongoing under, under the facade of, of a functioning democracy. And, but in effect, at the same time, the anti-war movement is is no longer visible as it was prior to the war in Iraq. And I believe the reason for that is the fact that the anti-war movement was largely focusing on big street events. It was not building a network. It wasn't building a power structure. It was not able to build a major consensus of organizations which could then confront the Bush administration politically. So that essentially what we're left with is uh, very successful uh, peace rallies, but no follow-up in terms of a broad network which has anti-war committees spread across the land. That's really what we need if we're going to reverse the tide of war. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much, and thank you for your article, Nuclear War Against Iran. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on the program, and please also visit our website at www.globalresearch.ca I've been speaking with author and professor of economics Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been Iran and the Nuclear Option. 
Michel Chosodovsky is author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and his latest book, America's War on Terrorism. His most recent article, Nuclear War Against Iran, can be found at the website of the Center for Research on Globalization, www.globalresearch.ca. That's www.globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Release. You dig me?